ready to get uh, inspired. <laughs> We're going to talk with Tamson Webster about something called the red thread and developing your messaging, your story, your speaking on this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. Hang in there and check it out. This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by the Office Small Business Academy, a monthly web series created for entrepreneurs and small to mid-sized business owners. And it's a source of ideas, inspiration, and smart ways of running a business. You can get tips and tricks on topics including marketing technology, people management, and more. Register now at aka.ms slash duct tape marketing. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jansen. My guest today is Tamsin Webster. She is that triple threat, uh, speaker, author, trainer, coach, consultant. I guess we got up to more than uh, three things there. Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. Uh, theoretically, we're going to talk about speaking and storytelling, but we'll see where we go. So Tamsin, thanks for joining me. Oh, I'm excited to be here. You and I had dinner not too long ago at one of these events we were at, and you started to tell me a little bit about your background, and it wasn't necessarily a conventional path to uh, being a marketing speaker and consultant. Um, why don't you, you want to talk a little bit about how you kind of got started doing this? Absolutely. I, it, what's interesting is that I, I did, in fact, study marketing, but how I ended up where I am now is a little unusual. Uh, so I, I did study marketing undergraduate, then, but, but for grad school, I was more interested in organizational behavior because it didn't take much to realize that a message didn't work on the outside if it didn't click mm -hmm. inside first. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first places I went after grad school was working as a change management consultant, where I helped organizations figure out how to navigate major organizational change, mergers and acquisitions, things like that. And what was fascinating was that it, who, who would have guessed that marketing would be helpful with that and how much that that small introduction to change management would affect the rest of my career. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've been working with small business owners forever. And I mean, you know, talk about everything is marketing. Um, you know, every bit of what you talked about, organizational development, who they hire, how they train them or don't, you know, I mean, really everything is marketing. And I think a lot of organizations, big and small, are coming to realize that that, you know, that, that they can't really distance themselves from what you said so eloquently. Well, it, it's true. And I think there's what's, what's fascinating is what I realized, what I could not have possibly realized at the time was that I would always be about helping companies and now increasingly individuals make change happen? How do you create change? How do you master change, in fact? And how that would combine with the toolbox of marketing and messaging that was kind of what I fell back on the whole time. What's interesting is that after I went out, uh, after being from change management, I went back to what my childhood love was because I wanted to grow up and be an art museum director. Isn't that what everybody wants to be? Um, but so I went from change management to working at a museum up here in the in the Northeast, in the Boston area. And kind of, kind of on paper, it looks like I job hopped because I went from, I was there for a few years managing the exhibition planning process. But if you think about it, it was about figuring out how to take what was inside the museum and find a way to package it for the market outside. In other words, how do you figure out which 
collections of things that the museum could put on display that people would be most resonant with. And that just started a whole bunch of different things ever from there. So uh, performing arts college to I worked at Harvard Medical School for a number of years uh, and then and then switched over and went into agency work for a while. So who's your baseball team? Red Sox, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the here's the question. Hard question. Hardest question. Okay. All right. So you're at Fenway and and you're playing my Royals (laughs) and we have a runner on first and our batter hits a. Pretty sharp one hopper to the second baseman who turns and throws to the shortstop who uh, causes a force out at second and then fires to first and causes a force out double play there. How do you score that? All right. You need to tell me that again because you started telling it to me before I heard it. <laughs> before you right, realized what, what I was talking I know. Talking about. I was like, oh, right, so he's giving me a scoring baseball uh, question because, yes, I can do it. All right. Tell me again. There's a runner on first. And yep, so runner first. Uh, the batter hits a ball sharply to the second baseman who – uh, pivots and throws to the shortstop for a force out at second, who then fires on the first to complete the double play at first. How do you score that? That's a – that would be the – oh, hold on. I That's the 4-6-3 double play. The classic 4-6-3 double play. Three double play, awesome. yes. Sorry, I had to All like right. – I'm a visual person, so I was like, I had yeah. to draw it. And I'm like, okay, got it. I knew I, li- I knew I liked you, but now I am in love. <laughs> Yes, that's because random fact, I was a the the manager of the varsity boys baseball team in high school. So for I think it was three years, I I went to every home and away game and and scored the baseball games, and it, it is an enduring skill. So I taught my daughters how to do that, but um, they didn't nice. re- they didn't really appreciate it as much as I. Did. I was one of those geeks. Well, that, yeah, it's yeah. a good thing to do during a baseball game. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's just it's a fun way to stay connected well, and, and, that, and really understand, see what's see what's going on. Yeah, I found that um, if I could get them connected to scoring the game, they were less likely to want chocolate malts and everything else between every inning. Yeah. Ah, clever. <laughs> yes. So it's all about understanding meaning, John G. That's what's really going on. That's right. So you are a like so many people, I think, in our business, um, somewhat of a reader. Mm. Um, and so I was. I, I what? Are, I need some new books. What are a couple things you're reading right now that you're kind of psyched about? So no, notice I say a couple here. things because we all like read ten at the same time. I do read ten at the same time. <laughs> so okay. So I just finished reading a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God. Wow. <laughs> um, which has nothing to do with business, but I always try to make sure something like that's in my rotation, which is some interesting story about something. And what this was was uh, was a exp- story of an expedition in 2012 to an unexplored region of Honduras to mm. to to uh, map a recently discovered pre well uh coincident with a maya civilization mm-hmm. anyway it was a great storytelling because they all went in it was supposedly cursed and then wouldn't you know it all the people who went in uh half of them contracted something that's called leishmaniasis which mm-hmm. is also known as white leprosy so mm-hmm. they in fact were cursed by their venturing into the lost city the monkey god um also in the midst of reading right now uh, let's see. I just I've, I finished a big run of seeing how other people write. So mm-hmm. it started by reading Sean Coyne's The Story Grid, which is a mm-hmm. fascinating, deep, deep look at how to structure a, a novel or a feature length film or just really any long form piece of content. And that started to get me curious about other things. So I think, think the 
I, I started then from there. I went to movies. I read Blake Snyder's books, uh, Save the Cat, Save the Cat Strikes yeah, yeah. Back, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies. And then on uh, our, our friend and fellow speaker, Erica Napolitano's recommendation just finished The Hero Succeeds by Cam Miller, which is about TV pilots. And I think TV pilots are a wonderful analog for talks because this, it's roughly the same amount of content. Your average drama is going to be about 40 minutes minus the commercial breaks. And that's about the amount of content in your average talk. Yeah. So I'm going to – I didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole, but I'm going to because <clears throat> I'm just finishing up a book called Sapiens. Oh, and cool. I heartily, heartily recommend you read it because uh, it is – I'm the same way. I like to read other stuff, but I find myself curiously relating something that's not supposed to be about marketing at all to <laughs> to marketing. And, that's the most fun, though. I love that. <laughs> and so one of the, the, the big premises of this book is that, first off, there were uh, multiple, multiple species of – us, right, humans, that Homo sapiens just became, you know, one of them. And that, you know, why did they like end up being the the species that survived? And it really came down to storytelling. That really? that, that his premise was that uh, societies, you know, you had these band of, of uh, you know, people out there looking for their food, and they were typically small groups, individuals, and that once uh, once people started to be able to tell stories, even if they weren't true, right? Stories about a god or about a religion or about uh, uh, the other tribe. Once they were actually started, were able to create stories or fabricate stories, they were actually able to then marshal large amounts of people to do things to keep the story real. Um, and I just, oh, uh, I love that. I, it, uh, it, I just was so struck by how true I think that is about the power of storytelling. It's it's fascinating. I I just endlessly, endlessly fascinated by what is it that makes all of that work. So some of the some of my favorite books of last year that I read were uh, the books by Kendall Haven, so Story Proof mm -hmm. and Story Smart. And he's a researcher, a legit researcher, not just like, hey, let me tell you about storytelling, but <laughs> like can put people in a lab and fMRI machines and take a look at what they're what they're doing. And he's done some amazing work on understanding why stories work and focusing particularly on the pre-conscious making of meaning that happens. Right. Uh, and that's that's just been that's that's been a, a wonderful insight into it, well, we know stories work, but why yeah. do they work and yeah. why are they so yeah. powerful? So it's cool to see that that's been applied to an anthropological thing. My mom would be proud. She was a, she was a, she is, I should say, a, a doctorate in anthropology. Well, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, the whole oral tradition thing. But this was this was really more like relating to why we became the, you know, the top of the food chain was basically related to stories. And I thought, wow, mm. that's really cool. So, and I knew you, I knew you'd uh, dig that, but um, let's talk about um, a story of yours called The Red Thread. Hmm. I love the, yes, please. <laughs> so The Red Thread is very much a, 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 the crystallization of that 20 years in, in marketing and in, and in change. Uh, and I, I like to describe it as our secret weapon for mastering change or mastering the maze that is what, what life produces. And ultimately what it is, is like Mad Libs for Meaning. Mm -hmm. 
So if you remember the game Mad Libs, or did you have it? Did you play oh, yeah, it with your yeah, girls? Yeah, no, I'll, it's been a while, but yes, it's I, been a while. I, I so was terrible at it. <laughs> it was ter- it's a terrible game. I know, but um, it's it, it for anybody who doesn't remember. I'm, it's this pad, usually of paper, with a bunch of pre-written stories on it, and then you have to fill in the blanks with things like nouns and verbs and all sorts of other things. But when you fill in those stories, you 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 don't know what the story is when you're filling it in. But what's interesting is that this with how our brains work with meaning is that we that story is pre-written and that mm-hmm. and the only thing that's different is how each of us fill in the blanks. So the red thread is that it is our personal filter for how we see the world and how we make meaning of it. And if you're wondering, well, how does that relate to change? It's it comes down to this, that meaning precedes all change. Like, it's the Trojan horse of meaning. Like In order to, to respond at all, something has to make sense to you. And so the red thread is our personal way that we make sense of the world. And, and so how does somebody who's sitting there thinking, I want to influence someone <laughs> to my idea, um, how do they make meaning then? Or, or, well, or, they make, or I shouldn't oh, say necessarily how as much as, as how do they apply that idea? Well, there's two ways to apply that idea. One is to understand better how you make meaning of the world so that mm-hmm. you, it's, it, you're, you're much more able and more quickly to figure out how to either do I respond to the situation or how to create the situation because it, it operates from this perspective of what are the problems that you solve over and over again? What are, what are the problems that you're drawn to? And simultaneously, what are, what's the set of tools that you, you bring to those problems? But finally, and this is a thing that I think sets it apart from other ways that people describe who it is, you know, who it is that you are and what it is that you do, is that we also have this distinct reason why we are drawn to both. Why is it that we solve those problems and why is it we draw those solutions? So when you understand your own red thread, you're able to frame things for yourself a lot better. But because this this framework, this how we make meaning of the world is universal, the way you can use it if you're trying to help create or promote change with somebody else, let's say even an organization, if you organize what you're talking about into those categories, in other words, you you fill in the blanks of this meaning mad lib uh, with the story that you need to tell around this change, you're going to dramatically increase the likelihood that it's gonna be effective because it's how we make meaning. We're always looking for what is it that we're trying to get? What's what's going to be the result if I do this? What is it? Does this does this help if I listen, if I make this change? Will it help me get what I want? Uh, why am I not getting it right now? Why is that a problem? Why does that same thing dictate why I need to move in a different direction? And then finally, well, how do I do that? So the red thread helps you individually, but also helps you help something make sense to other people. In other words, it can help you make things make sense for others. So when you work with speakers, and a lot of times people come in and they have their preconceived notion about what a speaker is supposed to do and how they're supposed to act, and um, do you find yourself saying that's not you the, um, when you're coaching somebody? I'm sure you're more gentle than that, but that you know you don't even know yourself, so you can't do this. I mean, is that is that a potential <laughs> instruction that you might give to somebody? I would only say that if I felt there was some gap between what somebody was doing and what it seemed like they really wanted to do. Yeah. And and here's what I mean by that. That I the one of the reasons why I said that Red Thread is this product of 20 years of, of marketing is because I am 
really angry about personal branding. I got to say, <laughs> I, I hate the concept. I have always hated the concept. Uh, and and because I think it, it relates directly to where speakers fail. Mm -hmm. And here's why. Personal branding, I think, when, when we talk about building a brand consciously too often, when it's misunderstood, and, and I think most of the time it is misunderstood, people start to create this thing other than themselves. What do I right, think right, people... Right. You know, what do I need to make myself into in order to be this thing or to achieve my goals? Yeah, yeah. And speakers do the same thing. They say, well, how do I think I need to act in order for people to like me, people to trust me, or for, for you know, in order for me to be like Steve Jobs or to mimic some other speaker I think is good. Yeah. And the reason why I like the red thread and why the red thread, it, it, I, I get so fired up about it, is because it builds on what people already do what they're already strong in. Mm -hmm. And so the only time that I would give that feedback to someone, if I just said, this is, there's a, there's a gap, I can see it, I can feel it. Cause we as humans can tell when there's a gap between who someone is and what they're representing themselves to be. I can't remember who said this probably goes back to Zig Ziglar or something, but, uh, um, I love this quote. Um, I, I couldn't hear a word he was saying because who he was being spoke so loudly. Mm, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, like, that is so so true of speakers. So how about those people? Though? I mean, there are definitely a lot of people I run into them every day that I want to write a book. I want to be a speaker. Um, I, I heard um, a, a somebody who is a speaker and an author uh, at a talk on a panel, and they said, you know, what, what do you have to do to do that? And he said, you have to have an idea. <laughs> that's really big and that is really important. Um, is that, do you feel that that's really the only way, the only reason to write a book or to become a speaker? It's not the only reason, uh, and but it's not the only thing you need either. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I say, I believe to my core, because uh, one of the things I do is I'm an executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, so I, I hear a lot of ideas okay. uh, and, I, and I'm in a position of helping people understand what's the difference between Hey, do I have a successful keynote topic? And do I have a TEDx idea? And they are they are different. Yeah. They are different. And the thing that I'll say to people, whether it's for they want to be a speaker for keynote purposes, or they want to be a speaker because thought leadership will help their business, or because they want you know they've got a, a TEDx talk on their bucket list, mm -hmm. is that everybody has already within them the 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 red thread of the idea that will help them do any one of those things. In other words, it's already there. But I don't know, honestly, whether or not everybody is willing to do the work to uncover it because it can get frustrating. It can get scary. It can get pretty discomforting because at some level you have to be willing to go out there with something that says, I stand 100% behind this. This is uniquely me. And I'm willing to expose parts of myself or my story or my belief system that I may not have originally thought. Yeah. Now, and I think what happens is when people aren't as successful as they want to be as a speaker or as an author or even a brand with how successful they want to be with their business, it's because some part of them still hasn't been ready to, and I'm not, I, I think everybody's capable of it, but they're not ready to take that next step into sharpening to a fine point. Who are they for? Why are they for that person and those people? Why do they want to serve them in the way they do? And why is that different and valuable than other people who are solving the same problem for those for those people? So what you're really saying is that doing a TEDx talk is a great personal branding step. <laughs> 
Sorry, um, sorry. I just had to break the tension. That it was so can awesome. be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, the thing is, though, back to what we were talking about before, about where you can always tell. You know, man, an audience can always tell if you're not doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. So when I said that having a big idea isn't the only thing you need, one of the things that I will tell, particularly people who want to be a TEDx speaker, is that you need three things. That idea needs to be, the idea needs to be three things. First, it needs to be an unmet need in the world. In other words, it, it needs to do something that people haven't been able to do yet, or it needs to give them a perspective they haven't heard yet. But it ultimately, it has to come down to, does it solve something people need to have solved? Mm -hmm. Second thing, do you have the, what I call domain of authority to speak about that thing? Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of people who want to talk about creativity or self-actualization or uh, overcoming fear. But if you, if, if you don't have clearly in your background a solid basis from which to talk about that thing, particularly if you want to talk about this high, high-level area, mm -hmm. then – people aren't going to listen to it or they're not going to give you the, they're not going to give or put as much faith into that as you would want them to. And then the third piece, and this might surprise some people, but you, I, yeah, I've seen it more often than I'd like to admit. The third piece that you need is an unquenchable desire to share that idea mm -hmm. with people. Because if you are not fired up about that idea, then nobody else is going to be. And a lot of times people, it goes back to this gap that's created by the, the, the misguided personal branding or misguided branding at all, which is I'm going to pursue this because I think it's a good idea or I think it's going to make me money or other people say I should talk about this, but it's not the thing that you really want to talk about. Or it, if we're talking about a brand, it's not the thing that a brand really is all about. And without that, you you cannot establish the connection that you need to with a market or with an audience. I want to go down a another side road. Don't worry, it's not going to involve um, any of your <clears throat> hobbies. Um, but <laughs> well, maybe it kind of does. Uh, one of the things I, that I've seen you do, and you and I talked about this, is that you know everybody uses the whatever the warmed over stories to make a certain point about somebody being heroic or, you know, whatever. And people kind of have their set stories that we've all heard before. And you really like to go and find those incredible stories that you can relate and bend and, and mold and turn into that story nobody's ever heard, but then they're just breath is taken away when, they, when the point comes around. Um, and you and I talked about this, that, that you – you sort of collect these almost, yes. you know, uh, like a hobby, I guess. And uh, um, have you have you started your uh, your research service yet where you're going to start sharing these? I love how you I love how you present it that way. You're like, so are you, have you done this thing that you <laughs> you should already be doing? Uh, no, but it is definitely in the business plan for this year. Yeah, I call it the swipe file. It's uh, right now people can find it if they follow anything I do with the hashtag swipe file. Um, but you're right. I just I love it's part of my normal it's part of my normal easing into the day anyway is to to read what's out there yeah, and yeah. if i have a spirit animal though i'm told it's not politically correct to have them anymore but if i were to identify strongly with an animal let's put it yeah. that way uh it would be a magpie because I, I like to find things and build things with them so i love to find these stories that are just hiding out there in plain sight that that help illustrate some of these universal concepts in a more interesting or different way. 
and or I like to take a, a, a story that people think they know and then mm-hmm. put a different interpretation on it. Because it's just anybody when they hear a story or they watch a TV show or they read an ad or whatever, they want everybody wants to walk away feeling a little bit smarter. Yeah. Uh, our, our mutual friend Clay A. Bear calls them portable stories that, that something somebody hears and then they carry with them so that the next time they're talking to somebody else, they retell it because that was a really interesting story with an interesting meaning attached. So, yeah, I, I love to find those things. So- Hopefully, I'm not going to put you on the spot with this, but can do you, do you can I have a favorite that you can illustrate this point? Oh my goodness, there's so many favorites. I mean, you're making me choose one right now. Okay, it doesn't have to be um, your favorite. Just first one comes to mind. First one comes to mm-hmm. mind is the is the hidden story of NASCAR. <laughs> Okay, go for it. Um, which, if you're a NASCAR fan, you probably know this, but if you don't know this, that NASCAR came out of uh, bootlegging. In oh, right, 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 in the in yeah. the the late 1920s and 30s, so in the South, in bootlegging, in order to outrun the cops, uh, moonshiners souped up Ford V8s and learned how to do essentially trick driving in order to escape the cops who didn't have cars that weren't souped up. Yep. And when when bootlegging when it when prohibition was over and bootlegging was no longer necessary, uh, these drivers still had this incredible skill. And they decided to start creating these races, or rather monetizing races they were already having. Mm-hmm. And thus NASCAR was born. And so there's a number of different stories. One of the things I love about collecting stories like this is just there's multiple things that you could tell out of that story. You could tell a story about how do you adapt to unexpected change. Right. You could <laughs> talk about the unexpected origins of well-known things. You could talk about how uh, f- how your products get used in ways that you may never have intended because Henry Ford was a rampant prohibitionist and it had mm. to have horrified him that <laughs> bootlegging existed because of the car he created. So there's just the more you dig into a story and the more you think about what are the points that you could make from it, the the more interesting they become. So yeah, NASCAR bootlegging is a is a fascinating one. And a lot of people don't know it. There's a great Steve Earle song called Copperhead Road that uh, really, you, you, if you're not familiar with it, uh, go check out the lyrics because that's what he talks about. Awesome. Um, yeah. So you are doing all manner of coaching folks uh, now, everything from working one-on-one to just saying, hey, come come, let me give you some pointers. Um, do you want to tell people who you think you can help and, and where they can find you? Sure. So from a, from a company standpoint, uh, I, you, you, can, you can take the girl out of marketing. You can't take marketing out of the girl. Uh, so I, I love to help companies figure out if they want to use speaking as a form of thought leadership, what is it they should be talking about that will help achieve, best achieve their goals? And also, what are, the, what are the combination of topics and talks that can help achieve their goals? So, and that can be a big company, but that can also be small companies as well, because no better way to get yourself in front of a room full of prospects, as long as you don't sell from the stage, right. than to make really good use of a conference session slot. Yeah. I, I believe really strongly in that as as an incredible marketing and sales tool, because think about how long it would take you to get in front of 50, 100, 150 self-selecting prospects like that. And it's just, you can't beat it. Yeah. And a lot of you, you know, especially if you're going to the conference anyway, or maybe you're buying a booth. Uh, the first question I always ask when somebody wants to sell me a booth is, do I get a conference spot? <laughs> Right. And and I do a lot of work with companies to understand the difference between a talk for marketing purposes and sure. a talk 
for selling purposes because they're very, very different. And the situation drives the mindset of the audience. There's certain situations where the audience is expecting to be sold to, and there's a way to do that well. And there's certain situations where they are not expecting to be sold to and never the twain shall meet, like do not sell in one of those situations. Would you say that's not exactly the same skill set either as a speaker, right? Uh, It it comes down to how the talk is constructed. I think the same speaker could do both. Uh, Honestly, I do. It really depends on whether or not you answer the audience's fundamental questions with me and what I can sell you versus Mm -hmm. more philosophical approaches to how do you fix a problem. So there's a difference between... You know, in a marketing standpoint, for instance, you may your, your the main message of the talk might be why your why the information that's in your data systems is more important than the specific uh, infrastructure that you're using. Uh, that would be a marketing spin on that talk. You know, sales spin on that talk could still be the same person. Is you know why CRM.com's our services are the best way to maximize the information out of your infrastructure, right. right? So that's that would be a quick example of the difference between a marketing and sales talk for the same company. Yeah. Um, for individuals, what I help people do is is either if they're trying to find their big idea, so what is it that I should talk about, and depending on your goals are. So sometimes people just want to move out of being a breakout session speaker and they want to be kind of main stage or a keynote speaker. Well, what topics, what talks will move them there? Because a lot of times it's not their ability to speak that's keeping them in breakout sessions. It's their topics. You know, their topics are too tactical. Yeah. Uh, the other place, the other places I help uh, folks is how can I build a talk. I need to build this talk now that I've got this. I know how to build a breakout session talk, but I don't know how to build uh, a keynote talk or I don't, I've got this opportunity or I have it on my bucket list to, to have a, do a TED style talk, 20 minute talk, 10 minute talk. How do I do that? Uh, and then the final thing that I help folks with still through the lens of building a talk is I just generally want to be a better speaker. How do I do that? And I find it helps to have a talk to work on. So those are those. That's the range of things I do. Ultimately, it comes down to helping people and companies build talks that matter. And where can people find you, Tamsin? They can find me at TamsinWebster.com. Awesome. I'm the only one in the world, so it's pretty easy to find me. <laughs> you don't have to have. These are the top ten Tamsin Websters on LinkedIn. That's uh, right. Now, so suddenly people start changing their name to Tamsin Webster, yeah. and then I'll have I'll have competition something. Well, I don't know. I, yours it well, the people probably struggle with Tamsin a little bit because it's a little unique. But uh, you know, try try spelling Jance. But <laughs> fortunately, I'm the only one too. But it uh, it's a little odd. But Tamsin, always great. This um, this was a lot of fun, inspirational, and uh, hopefully we will run into you out there on the road again soon. All right, love chatting with you, John. Thanks so much.